Good morning. Our scripture this morning is Matthew 5, 43 through 48, despite what that says up there. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. All right, good morning. Everybody good? Recovered? Good rested? I don't know, all that. Um, Who else? Okay, so, just show of hands, how many of you do not have power yet? Are we still got a few? We got a few over here and there? Okay. Um... If you guys need anything, like seriously contact the church. We have, we have supplies, we have batteries. You can stay here, whatever. Um, just let us know. And there's a lot of other people, um, places like Lakeland. I have family over there. They still don't have power. Um, some in Palm Harbor. Some, um, uh, I, okay, Highland County. If you're familiar with what's going on over there. I was contacted uh, two days ago by uh, someone in our church who works for, I believe, News Channel 10. Um, and, and basically said that um, it's a pretty dire situation over there. They're not going to have power for a while. And what they need, more than like money and stuff like that, what, they, what you could really do if you just want to do tangible help, load up your car with some ice, drive it down to Highland County, find a parking lot there, and give it to some people who are gathered there trying to get help. Oh, hey. Um, because it's a bit of a desperate situation over there. Um, there's no water anywhere. What they need, what they really need is ice and what they want is ice. Um, don't like load up and go to like the sketchiest place you can find in a back alley and stand there with ice. Don't do that. Go somewhere safe, um, in the open, maybe let some people know. Um, but, uh, if you're just looking for something that you can do, there's that. Um, and so I'm aware a lot of you are probably a little financially tied up now from, um, from all of this. And so I want to be very sensitive to all of that. Um, so if you can't afford to give right now, don't worry about that. You do what you need to do. I, I, but I, I just wanted to let you know and put it out there for you guys, our situation here as well. Our attendance has gone way up, but our giving has just plummeted. Um, so this week we were down to about 28, 2900 bucks in the account. So there's that. Just wanted to let you know. So if you find a suitcase of money somewhere, turn it into the police. But if nobody claims it, bring it back and be like, Hey, here you go. I found this. Well, thanks. Um, because um, we, you know, we have, um, I'm the only full-time staff member. We have several part-time staff uh, members. Um, and uh, we're doing everything we can to, like, cut expenses and cut hours and stuff like that. But just wanted to let you know, just so you know. Um, and then uh, we've, been, uh, we've been going through Matthew chapter 5, uh, um, the Sermon on the Mount. This is what's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you are a, uh, like a, kind of new to teachings of Christ, to Christianity, Matthew 5 through 7, is, um, is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of this really highly concentrated passage that is 
um, a summary of basically all the teachings of Jesus compact into like two chapters, okay? So if nothing else, if you don't know where to start, if you don't know what to read, start there, Matthew 5 to 7, and read it over and over and over, and you'll start to begin to understand the heart of Jesus. Um, And on top of that, it just spread out around the New Testament, read some stuff, um, and gather here and ask questions. Um, but uh, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount to sort of recalibrate sort of, uh, and get our minds wrapped around the, the teachings of Christ. And so today we're doing this passage, Love Your Enemies, a difficult one. Uh, and so I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask for just um, for guidance and for wisdom for all of us, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and for these people. I... I I want to pause right now and, and just offer our thankfulness that, that we are here, that, uh, that we are gathered together. We still have a place to gather and we still have people gathered together with, people that were spread out all over the country and now we are back here together focusing on the higher, uh, more joyful, more wonderful things about life, about the gift of life that you've given us. And so we receive all of that with joy and thanksgiving. Um, I ask that right now that you would allow us to be present and here with each other. I ask that uh, you would uh, speak through me, that you would allow me to remember the things I've studied and to communicate clearly. Keep us free from distraction. Keep Keep us free from worry about future or past. Let us be present here receiving the gift of, uh, of, of your spirit uh, convicting us and changing us and refocusing our, our hearts and our mind and our eyes on the things of you, the things that we believe can heal this world. And so uh, we are open and we are present. We ask that you would speak to us. Amen. Okay, so this passage, um, believe it or not, most people who are not even Christians, who know nothing about Jesus, know that this passage is in your Bible. They know that. They know it's in there. And they'll quote it to you in a YouTube debate or something, they'll say, doesn't your Bible say that you're supposed to love your enemies? Doesn't it say to pray for those who persecute you? Doesn't it say to like turn the other cheek and some stuff like that? Like, doesn't your Bible say that? The fact is that most Christians, especially today, especially in our context and especially in our own country, um, we tend to ignore these passages entirely. We tend to pretend they don't, they're not in there or we tend to try to explain them away and say, well, contextually is this and this. Like this is Jesus teaching us um, his heart about how we are to respond to our enemies, to those who hate us. Not talking just, although included, not just national enemies. I'm not talking just, um, just bad guys in general. Um, personal enemies in your life, people that are there that give you a hard time. Um, every day the people that will come into your life make a big racket and then leave in that one day. How do we respond? What do we do? What is the mindset with which we should have? Um, and the world knows this passage is in there. Doesn't your Bible say to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? And it's interesting because I don't, I don't see you doing that. They'll point this out to you and they'll point out our, our hypocrisy, which we regularly will display publicly for all to see. So, um, I'm going to work my way through this passage verse by verse. Um, I'm going to offer some context. I'm going to offer some, uh, some Greek words just for fun and kicks and giggles because it changes sort of how you look at these things. It's good. Um, so we're going to start off right here. Matthew 5, 43. It says, you have heard that it was said. This is Jesus talking, by the way. Jesus himself. His words. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's naming things which are laws in Judaism um, and um, in, in a lot of religions in that day. He's naming the, the well-known ethical and moral laws of the day. Um, the ones he's naming come straight out of the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Um, it's Mosaic and Levitical law. Um, and he's naming them and he says, but I would actually take this farther. He says, you live by this law. Um, I would actually argue that it's this. And so he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so he's quoting a particular law from the book of Leviticus um, in chapter 19, verse 18. It says, do not try to get even. Do not hold anything against one of your people. Instead, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am the Lord. Now, um, first thing you might notice off the bat, it says nothing about hating your enemy. We'll get to that. Um, Another thing you might notice is it's, it's insular. It's sort of, uh, it's do not hold anything against uh, one of your people. It's talking about, it's, it's almost tribal, your people. Um, and then it says, instead, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So neighbor, they're going to do everything they can to interpret that as someone next to them because nobody really wants to love someone who is nothing like them and is far away and is actually warring against them. This was written at a time when the world was very tribal and people built walls around their cities and tried to destroy other cities. Um, and so... Um, over time, by the time we get to the first century of Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees had sort of injected all kinds of other ideas into these passages and had picked them all apart and been able to twist them into being exactly what they wanted them to be. Um, And so anywhere where you would see the word neighbor, they would start translating as friend um, because it makes it easier to follow. Jesus later would challenge this. He would tell the story of the Good Samaritan and he would say, now who is the neighbor? Um, And we'll get there a month, maybe years from now. Who knows? Um, He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, I am the Lord. So, um, and it's interesting because as you follow the translations of scriptures, um, so in the first century, they would be studying and reading this book called the Septuagint. It was a a Greek translation of the ancient Hebrew Bible, um, translated into the modern day Greek, which they spoke then, um, the Koine Greek. Um, And they would be reading this, and this was translated as, um, neighbor started to become translated as friend. Um, By the way, this was also true of a book called, there's a book called the Vulgate. It It was the Latin Bible that the Catholic Church used from like the first century all the way up. Um, well, when, once this thing was canonized, all the way up until um, really not too long ago in history. Um, but this word neighbor would be translated as friend because people want to stress that like, no, we, we're good to our own. And so people have started to infer sort of the, the inverse. If we're good to our friends, if we love our friends, we hate our enemies. Because if you're going you're to hate somebody, you're not going to hate your friends, obviously. You're going to hate your enemies. And so we love our neighbors and we hate our enemies. And so Jesus knows that they're thinking this way and talking this way. And he takes this language and he says, here's how you look at things. You believe you should love your friends and your neighbors and you should hate your enemies. And then he says, but I say to you, love your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. Now, um, there are... In English, there's one word for love, really. We say it the same all the time. We say, um, I love that place, that restaurant. We say, I love my wife and children. And we say, we made love. Like, and somehow it's all the same word. Um, and we just throw this word around, like, oh, I love that. Um, and uh, and, and it, we know that we, we sort of bring the meaning of that word love out in the context of the phrase. In the Greek, there's actually many words um, 
for love. There is, um, there's this word storge. Everyone, everyone say storge. Okay, I'm going to do my best to keep you guys awake this morning because we had an incident. Um, don't worry about it. Um, storge, uh, it, it's referring to family love. Family love is this, uh, it's, it's, it's innate, it's built into you. You don't have to try to love your, some of you have to try to love your family. Most of us, um, there is sort of this like, you know, if you, there's a whole playground full of children um, and you're just looking at them all and they're all adorable and they're all cute, but then yours runs by and you're like, oh, okay. We should, it's a community of confession. Admit it, admit it. Your kid's cuter than the others. I get it. Mine are too. Um, I'll be the honest one. Uh, family love, storge. And then there's the word eros. Everyone say eros. Okay, so this is where we get words like erotic. It has to do with sexual love. It has to do with um, sort of the, the physiological reaction you have towards those you are like attracted to and stuff. And then you have the word philia. Very good. Okay, well done, class. I need like a pointer. Um, affection, meaningful connection. This is like what you have for your friends. You sat with particular people today, and if you're not married to them, you, maybe you sat next to them because you have philia for them. Um, brotherly, sisterly love. It's this idea of, um, you know, we have, a, we have a city named Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's where this word comes from. Um, at, really? <laughs> that blew your mind? And communion. getting easier. Um, okay. So we have all these different words for love. And then there's this other word that is actually used today. We've talked about this before, but every time we talk about it, it's amazing. And if that blew your mind, wait for this one. Um, it's this word agape. Everyone say agape. This is a good, good word. Okay. Now agape is, it's, it's love of the will. Uh, it's almost exclusively used in a Christian context and Christian writings from the first century. Um, really nowhere else are you going to see this word. And if you do, um, there's probably a historian that can show you that they actually took it from the Christian community. Um, the word agape is this, is this word um, that it's, it's choosing to love someone despite the kind of person they are, the fact that they are the way they are, despite what they've done to you, the things they've said about you. It is this whole other way of loving people that is unique to the Christian community in the first century. Um, and we don't see a lot of it today. And when we do, it's stunning. And, it, it, and, it's, and it's shocking. And it's surprising. Um, and so this word uh, agape, it's, it, it means seeking the good for another, no matter what we receive from them. It's seeking nothing but the highest good for anyone else. It is something that you choose to show towards other people. Now, um, Why does it matter that the Greek has four different words for love? Because you have to understand what Jesus is telling you. Jesus is not telling you that you must love your enemy the same way that you love your family. Um, Storge, family love, you you will not love your enemy in that way. That's impossible. Um, Obviously, eros, (laughs) need I say more? Um, philia, affection, meaningful connection, like you're not going to love your enemy in this way at all. Um, these are two vastly different things. Um, 
It's, it's different kinds of love. When Jesus says, love your enemy, he's saying something very specific. You see, storge, again, it's innate. It comes from the heart, it's the familial love. It's this thing, you don't have to try hard. You see your children in the morning, you kind of smile. Like, they're, they're beautiful. And it's, it's, you are created to just, yes, release love for them. Um, but agape is not innate. It's willed. It comes from the mind. It's a decision that you make. It requires that you be what's called a, a non um, a non-reactive presence, really. Uh, it's, you're the kind of person that your actions are not determined by someone else's actions. It's a decision that you make. I'm going to go into this. I'm going to look at them in this particular way, no matter what they say or do or how they react. It's a very difficult thing to accomplish and achieve. It is the reason that we have things like the spiritual disciplines, um, which Jesus is now actually going to bring up. He says, so you're going to love your enemy. Um, You're going to wish the best for them. You're going to want them to receive the good things which you desire. You're not, you're, you're going to, any desire that you had for their destruction, you're going to suspend and you're going to have a different thought process for them. And then Jesus brings into this, this particular line. He says, so love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, so he brings in a spiritual discipline, the discipline of prayer. How many of you were in the spiritual disciplines class this morning? Any of you? Okay, we got a few. Um, so I want to talk about that for a second, the idea of prayer, because um, a lot of people don't actually realize that there's six different Greek words for prayer, and they all have these slightly different meanings. And this one is fascinating. Um, the word that is used here, and you are going to repeat this after me, it's prosyukomai. Good class. Good. Gold stars all around. Now, Pros yukomai, if we, if we divide this up, you get three words out of this. Pros, it means towards, it means with. Um, it, when you're thinking about this, you're going to think of your enemy. And so the word pros, for that moment, you are towards your enemy. You, you turn towards them instead of away. You are with your enemy and you're facing them. And then uh, you is the word for, it's like a little tiny word that, that symbolizes good. Uh, it's, it's, it, it means good things. Um, and so you're turning towards them and you're sending it, like, it with, with a mindset that is for good, not turning towards them to like punch them in the face, but you, have, you wish good. And then komai, it's, it's a vow or it's a gift. It is, uh, it is um, it's a gift that you're going to give them. I'm going to give you this goodness. I have goodness in my heart for you. I'm going to hand it to you. I'm going to lay it at your feet. This is for you. Pros yukomai. So it is this... Um, particular thing. It is, it is a spiritual discipline. Now, um, for those of you who took the meditation sort of class a couple weeks back, and those of you who were in the prayer class today, I'm going to combine these ideas on, because what we're talking about here is a particular type of prayer um, that um, is, is a discipline. Um, if I were to define to you what meditation is, scriptures tell us to meditate on the word of God and to meditate on love and different, the things of God, meditate upon these things after, after a whole list of like all these biblical things. Um, meditation is, if I were to use a metaphor for it, I would describe it as, as a dog chewing a bone. Now, here's what this means. You give, no matter how, especially people who have like small, tiny dogs, yappers, that's what they call them, um, they like to buy them these, it's funny to buy them like a huge bone, right? And put it down and they carry it around. And it seems in your mind, ha, it's funny. Why? Because he'll never be able to chew that and it'll last his whole life. But what you'll notice is they'll sit down on the rug and they'll start chewing on the bone. And, and the bone is hard as a rock. It's concrete. You can like, 
use it as a meat tenderizer, whatever you want. Um, but it's hard and it's, it's hard to, and over time, the dog will every day come back to it several times a day. It'll take some walks. It'll come back, chew on the bone. It'll go to sleep, wake up, chew on the bone. It'll run around, come back, chew on the bone. Every day, it's going to do the same thing over and over and over. It is chewing on the bone. And what you'll notice is the bone will start to change. It'll start to get smaller. And at some, time, at some point, you'll be like, wow, they're, they're like, they're eating that thing. They're making a dent in it. They're devouring it. It's getting smaller. It's disappearing. And there will come a day when it will be this tiny little thing and they will finish it and you'll go give them another one because they have devoured this bone entirely. That is a great way to think about meditation, believe it or not. Uh, meditation is this thing. You choose this, this discipline, maybe from the teachings of Christ that you would like to have. You, you read the Sermon on the Mount. You, Love my enemies. That's impossible. Yes, impossible. It's huge. It's this huge thing. You can never devour that. You can never take that inside yourself. So what we're going to do is we're going to chew on this every single day. Or we're going to chew on the bone. And every day it's sort of going to change. It's going to get smaller and smaller. And one day you will find that you have devoured it and it is inside. It is part of you. Uh, and then you're going to pick up something else. And you're going to get busy on that. But it's every day taking time and returning to chewing on the dog bone every single day. This is a great way to think about meditation. This is how it works. Slowly over time, it changes. If I were to, to put this into a phrase, prosyukomai, I would say it's praying for your enemy uh, is the practice of moving your heart from, watching their destru- from wanting their destruction to wanting goodness for them, even if it is just for a moment. And so it is a moment where you're going to stop and purposefully turn your heart towards them um, and it's, it's several things. It's an affirmation that your heart is set a specific way. You have been trained and culturally conditioned to have your heart away from people that want your destruction. Um, to have your heart, uh, ha- and, and think of particular people in particular ways, depending on where you grew up. Um, people who have been declared the enemy of yours since you were a child. You have a particular way of viewing them. Um, people who are that different from you. Some of us struggle with this thing called xenophobia. It's fear of people who are just different. Um, and it is this sort of posture you have towards them where they're in some ways an enemy. They're a threat to your society in some way. The discipline of prosyukomai is stopping and for a few moments, turning your heart towards love and good things for them. If I were to draw this, and I did, it would look a bit... It would look a bit like this. You have this mindset and it's this straight line and it is your default setting and you're walking along this way. Prosyukomai, the, the discipline of meditation and, and wanting good for other people is this moment where you're going, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to push things aside. I'm going to stop and I'm going to spend some time in this mindset just for a moment and maybe for another moment a little later and another moment a little later. And what you will find, and, and you know, eventually you're going to, okay, so I'm done with that. And you're going to get back on the path um, that you were on before. And that's okay. It's understandable. You're a human being. Um, but we believe in growth. We believe in becoming more like Christ. And so there's this discipline that every day you're going to exercise. And what you will find is the more and more you move down this path, these periods will start getting bigger and longer. One day you will wake up and realize, I no longer view this person the way that I did before. I no longer view them like that anymore at all. Um, this is several things too. Um, first off, it's, it's a path towards growth, but, but um, the, the growth comes about because agape, is, it's a discipline. It's something that you must do. It is something that you commit to and you practice it. Um, there are far too many Christians who have thrown out the spiritual disciplines um, and they don't see a use and a purpose for them anymore. Um, and it shows now because of the kind of people that we have become. The kind of uh, 
of church, the American church has become, where the world looks at us and they remind us of what our Bible says, right? Um, so it's a discipline. Uh, the second thing agape is, is agape is a freedom. And this is the surprising thing. Um, you all know that that person that rubs you the wrong way, they're, they're always going to be like that. I just want you to know that. You, it's fun to like assume that one day they will change and, and we pray that they do. But I want you to assume for the moment that they never do it. They never will. And to make it worse, they're going to be at Thanksgiving in two months. You're going to sit across from them maybe. And they're going to do it again. The same thing that they did last time. They're going to say the words. Um, they're going to have a comment. They're going to do that thing. Uh, they're, they're going to be like that. Okay. Um, part of agape is understanding and accepting. They don't, they don't necessarily have to change for me to love them. It is a freedom because what you start to realize is that like when you are not practicing the spiritual disciplines, your mind is set a specific way. What you come to find is you're a prisoner to their actions. You're going to get mad. They control you. They, they will always control you as long as you fail to grow and practice these disciplines. They will always have a way to push your buttons and to get the reaction they want. What they want is for you to for you to be mad at them, they win. They want you to be bitter against them. They are, in a biblical sense, they, they are the enemy. They're against you. You are seeking things that are good and joyful and gracious. They want the opposite for you. I'm not even talking about why. It could be, um, it could be a mental health issue. It could be an experience that they went through. I'm not even talking about the, the, the reason that, that they are the way that they are. But what you'll come to realize is that I have been a slave my entire life to this person. And I allow them to control my emotions. Agape is the freedom to look at them and say, it's okay. And then someone looks at you and says, but they're going to do that again. That's okay. I'm related to them. I love them. And if I'm going to have a relationship with them, I just need to admit that that's going to be there. I'm not saying put yourself in an abusive relationship. But most of what we deal with that makes us upset is not abuse. It's just people being people and allowing their hurt to control them. There's this scene. So like uh, my, my favorite movie of all time is, uh, is The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Obviously, right? Um, all of you. It's obviously the same movie. Um, and there's this scene near the end where it's like it's Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet and they're in the hallway. And through a long series of circumstances, they've come to see who each other really are. And now they're standing in this room, in this hallway, deciding whether or not they're going to date. Um, and she looks at him and she says, look, I'm just a messed up girl. I have a lot of problems. She says, I'm going to feel trapped. I'm going to be mean to you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And she's laying out this long list of things that she's going to do. And she says, if you enter into a relationship with me, I'm going to do this to you. And he looks at her and he goes, okay. And she goes, Okay. He goes, okay. She goes, okay. And it's the most profound okay I've ever heard in my entire life. I'm like, oh, that's agape. That's what that is. It's stunning. It's freeing. It's like a moment where they realize, oh, we're free from each other. We're free from each other's actions to love each other's souls, to like embrace each other's hearts. And all that's going to come with it, but 
Is that not what God does for us? He knows everything that, he knows everything that, 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 that is going to come with the person that is you. There is some stuff in you that is absolutely unlovable. If you can't admit that, you're lying to yourself. There are things about all of us that nobody will ever love. But God loves you. Right? I mean, that's what agape is. Um, it's okay. That's how, that's, agape is, is, is almost sometimes just saying it's okay. I have love for you. Anyway, I desire good for you. Prosyukomai. That's what this is. Um, and then we move forward. We look at this little verse here. We talked about this recently. Um, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This is a rabbinical way of saying, um, this is the kind of person you are. So like, um, we have in the book of, we have in the book of Luke chapter 436, we have uh, Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. He's called the son of encouragement because he's an encouraging person. It's almost like he was born of encouragement. That's a rabbinical way of saying like, that's who this person is. Um, you have uh, the two brothers that were disciples. They're called the sons of thunder. Apparently they're like loud and boisterous and you know they're there. Um, we all know those people. Um, you know they're there all the time. Um, and they're, they're loud and, and they're called the sons of thunder because like they're, that's, that's kind of what they represent in the room. And he says, if you want people to look at you and think, you know, if God, like if anyone's godly, it's that person. This is how, this is how you achieve this. Um, people see that, that you are able to love people despite what they do and, and the kind of person they are and despite, despite what side of the aisle that they're on or whether or not they're working against what you're trying to accomplish and you love them anyways and you're kind to them anyways, um, that you have agape and you spend time um, orientating your heart towards love and good things for them. And they're like, man, you're, you are like Jesus. Nobody, like, nobody looks at any politician and ever says, well, they're, they're like Jesus. Never. Ever. We look at people um, who once in a while, they, they pop up and, and they do these amazing things. And you're like, that's a Jesus thing. That um, the survivors of that shooting in the, Charlotte church, in the church in Charlottesville, um, where this white boy walks in and, and kills a bunch of black people at a, at a at a prayer service. And at the end, after his trial, he's pronounced guilty. They stand up and they each give a speech. You know what they say? We have nothing but love for you. We forgive you. We hate what you did, but we, we love you. That's Jesus. That's what that looks like. It, it doesn't pop up very often because there's very, very few people. There's so few people actually living that way. That's what Jesus looks like. Um, you don't get that way on accident. Those people didn't just decide, they didn't just open the Bible and read it and say, well, I should forgive, so I'm going to forgive. No, they have obviously been through enough hate and enough pain to have to spend regular, disciplined time um, orienting, orientating their heart towards love. Constantly. And then finally, there is this moment where it, it is put on display for the whole world to see. And we're like, wow, that's Jesus right there. We rarely see it which is why it's so beautiful when we see it. It's, it's stunning and it's shocking. You can have that. Um, but not, it's not going to happen on accident. Um, and then we go farther. We, we, I'm going to put the, all of this together. It says, for he makes his son uh, rise on the evil and on the good and sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. I'm going to stop here for a second. So I had a conversation with my kids this week. Um, and... Uh, 
I asked a question. I was like, hey, isn't it? Uh, because uh, it was very sunny and it had not been sunny. You were there <laughs> for a few days. Um, and then it was sunny and it was nice and it was beautiful. And, uh, and we were enjoying like the porch and the sun. And I looked at my kids and I said, I said, man, isn't it amazing? Isn't it, isn't it amazing that God only shines sunlight on really good people. I said that to my kids. My daughter's like, no, he, no, he doesn't. It's like, of course he does. No, he doesn't. Well, I mean, well, Penelope, I mean, do, do you like sunlight? Yeah, I like it. It makes flowers grow and it's wears sparkly dress in the sun. She's, that's her. She's a girl. Um, like, like the most princessy little thing. Um, I love the sun. And she's talking like that. It's adorable. She's <laughs> dancing when she talks about it. And then, and then she, and I was like, well, so the sun is a gift then. It's a blessing, right? It's a gift. She's like, yes, it's a, it's a gift. It makes me happy. It's a joy. I said, well, why would God ever put, put the sun, like why would God ever shine the sun on, on evil, bad people? And she literally said, because God loves them. I was like, there you go. Six-year-old girl understands this huge concept that Jesus is about to literally teach the apostles. And she's there. She's ahead of the game. All right, here we go. Here's what it says, starting in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, by the way, if you're a tax collector, it was a specific thing. I apologize. It's not hating you. I I literally met a guy here who was a tax collector once and had questions. He was like, why is the people so mean to me? In, In the Bible, um, do not even the tax collectors love people? Um, and if you, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So I'm going to make a statement. It's going to rub you the wrong way. Here we go. Are you ready? Um, loving people who are good and doing good things for good people is ungodly. It is. It's what Jesus just said. In fact, it's, it's just, it's not sin. It's just not godly. It, it's human. It's all that is. Uh, in my late 20s, I was watching, um, I think it was some PBS special, maybe Frontline or something, and there was this journalist who was embedded with this uh, Al-Qaeda group in, I believe it was Afghanistan. And there's this guy, and he's got a wife, and he's a terrorist, and he's got a wife, and he's got like a, like a three-year-old little boy, and they're living in like this cave which they had made into like this home. Um, and it was really unsettling. Um, well, it wasn't unsettling because it was so evil. It was unsettling because um, he was like playing with his child and like tossing a ball back and forth and like wrestling and kissing his child on the forehead and hugging his wife and he loved his family. It was really disturbing. Like it, it messed with my mind. And I could not like hold this thing in my mind. They're like, no, this is a bad guy. He's obviously bad to everyone. Um, no, even people who do really evil things are good to those whom they love. That's why it's so disturbing when you see those old pictures of like Hitler, like holding a little girl and like kissing her on the cheek. That's what Jesus is saying. Even evil people are good to those whom they love. It's when you do something really good, like you give a gift to a person who's really good. I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just saying it's, 
It's not godly. It's human. It's it's a good thing to do. Godliness is showing love and goodness and grace to those who do not deserve it. That's who God is. That's what God does. When you do that, you are acting like God. Which is why so few people really could be described as godly. Which is why it's so shocking when someone actually acts like Jesus and stands up in a courtroom and does that. That's godliness. It's higher than the, than the morality of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's higher than the morality of just the everyday person, you and me. Um, it's this whole different thing. There's this quote from Dallas Willard. Um, and I read it here before, but it fits nicely here. It says, under God's rule, there is recognition that in bringing good to people who are in the wrong, you show the divine family resemblance. That's how people should see the church. Yet they don't. And we should be honest and admit that. We are struggling. As human beings, the family of God, we have lost sight of many of the things that we should be focused on and doing. Um, we have taken part in, um, in the acts of the world. What, what humanity and mankind has always done. Hate our enemies, love our friends. Hate our enemies, love our friends. Love people who are like you. Hate people who are not like you. And Christians get wrapped up in these earthly kingdoms and... And all of this stuff that we have no place being a part of. We are a separate kingdom. We are what the scriptures call resident aliens. We have our own kingdom that we are planting in the midst of this other one. And it looks vastly different. And and the world's not going to understand it. It's foolishness to them. They're not going to understand it. But this is how we should be responding to people um, who are separated from us. We should be moving towards them. We should be receiving them. We should be looking at them in a totally different way that transcends any law, any culture, any of it. It should be this other thing entirely. Um, and then Jesus caps this whole thing with this one line, and he says this, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Um, and now we're in trouble because we look at this and we're like, oh, well, here we go. It's out of my reach. Now, one of the problems is that we are, again, children of the Enlightenment. Between first century Judaism and now, there was this thing that rose up called Gnosticism, um, which made us look at everything, every word, like perfect uh, and good. It made us look at every word like that in a, in a, in a way that sort of interprets it as ethical or moral. Whereas in the first century, there were, before the rise of Hellenism and Gnosticism uh, in, in, in scriptures, um, there is this understanding that there are words like perfect that are, have nothing to do with ethics. This is not an ethical word. This is not saying perfect as in without sin. This is a word that is, trans, that is the, word, it's the Greek word teleos. And it's translated as, um, it's supposed to be like, it's, it's something that is designed. Uh, it refers to achieving something's intended purpose. Um, in other words, it is something that has been made with a specific task in mind. And it is doing that task. Here's a good way that I guess I could describe this. Um, let's say there are 10,000 people and they all have a wristwatch. Um, and they're all using the wristwatch differently. One guy's like, this table's a little crooked. Well, put the watch under the leg. Okay, and they put the watch under the leg. Another guy's like, my papers keep blowing around. Put the watch on the paper. It's a paperweight now. Um, one guy's like, I need a door knocker. And he just hangs out a watch and people just 
banging on the watch on the door. Um, and, 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 and someone else like, oh, a pipe broke. And he just put the watch around it and tightened it. And there's the, the pipe's fixed. Um, and they're repairing cars and they're using watches for all kinds of random reasons. And then this one guy steps up and he says, behold, a perfect watch, the perfect use for the watch. Your watch should be used perfectly as mine is. That's what this means. This is, it's an idea of like, there's a way that this thing is supposed to be used and this is how it's used. There's, there's, there's a specific way to use it. So when Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, there is this, um, there, there, there is this understanding of, so there's, there's humanity and here's how human beings act. But then Jesus is regularly stepping up and saying, hey, if you want to know what God was like, if you want to know what the heavenly father is like, you look at me. I'm living this life the way you were always intended to live. And so I want you to watch me live. Today, if anyone were to do this, we'd call them arrogant. Um, we call Jesus Lord. Like, this is how he lived. This is what he did. He's always welcoming those who had been pushed around and pushed aside. He flips the whole social ladder upside down and he looks down and he says, the people who are excluded, the people who are outside, I'm going to bring them in. And the people who think they should be in charge, I'm sort of going to just ignore them and move over here. We're going to do something new. And then when he's picking his followers, he's not picking qualified people. He's actually picking basically failures and losers. He's picking, um, there's this tax collector again, sorry, tax collector, um, He's a thief, basically, and he says, you're going to be one of my disciples. And then he finds this guy who's a zealot. Um, that's basically a terrorist, a murderer, a first century murderer, terrorist. And he says, you're going to be my disciple. And then he takes these two fishermen, um, it, the, like the lowest level service in the ancient world. And he's going to make all these people his disciples. He's going to gather women. They're going to sit at his feet. And so he's going to break sort of the social construct, the hierarchy. He's going to break the patriarchy. He's going to like flip this whole thing over. And he's going to say, now, this is what humanity should look like. He says, I want you guys to follow me. And he, I am perfect. This is what it means to live the way you were intended to live. So he says, all these other ways, they're just human. Um, they always have been human. I'm going to show you an entirely new way to be human. And I'm going to live this way. So what Jesus ushers in is a new vision of humanity. A new way for all of us to look at life and say, that is not how it should be done. This is how it should be done. This is how the world is made whole again. And he displays this from the moment he's born, born at the very bottom, to the moment that he dies, because he's hanging on the cross, and his arms are outstretched, and he's suffering, and he's looking down at all these people who just crucified him and beat him. They ripped out his beard. They whipped him. Uh, they, they made his face just look unrecognizable. And he's hanging on the cross, and you know what he does? He takes a moment to prosyukomai, to pray for these people. Father, forgive all these people. They don't know what they're doing. He wants something good for them while they're killing him. That is how it works. That's how it's displayed. There is no other picture that is, that is more a fully accurate picture of God then Jesus on the cross. When you think of God, you should think of Jesus on the cross, praying for people crucifying him. And then you should strive to be godly. That's it. If you read the Sermon on the Mount over and over again, this is what you will see. And so we're going to take communion. The communion service, you guys can go ahead and take the elements and spread around the room. Um, 
During communion today, I want you to have that picture of that person in your mind um, who is in a way, in some way, your enemy, who controls you, who pushes those buttons, the person, or maybe it's just, it, it's a, maybe it's an actual enemy, like a foreign enemy or somebody different from you, and you have been trained to look at them a specific way. This morning, I want you to start, I want you to start the discipline of meditation right now. I want you to take a few minutes, and I want you to picture this person in your mind, and in your mind, I want you to turn towards them. I want you to have something good in your hands for them, and I want to picture you to picture yourself handing it to them, and look into their eyes, with love and just do this. It's just for a moment. It's hard to do. And then I want you to continue doing that every so often. If you need to set a reminder on your phone, do it. But two months from now, that person is going to be sitting across the Thanksgiving table from you. Um, And I want you to look at them differently. I want you to have a heart that is vastly changed because you have been working out this muscle. You've been chewing on the dog bone that is uh, your hatred for them. And taking this inside and just do away with it. This is how this works. Every day should be like this exerted effort forward in your faith. And so we're gonna, we're gonna take a few minutes and we're gonna pray, exercise that. Maybe if it's, for the, if it's for the first time, good. Let's do that for the first time. Look at this person in a new way. Pray for them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the the family that you've brought together here. Thank you for the body of believers that we have. Change us. Fashion us in your image. Show us what it's like to be godly people. Remind us that godliness is is way higher, way harder than, than we have been assuming but it's more beautiful, it's, it's more life-giving and more fulfilling, and it's more healing and changing than anything else. Change us. Heal us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your death, your burial, your resurrection. Make it alive in us. In your name, amen. Take some time, talk to Jesus.